Hello, North Star Baptist Church and those joining us online. I pray that you are ready to worship through the hearing of God's Word. And just as we always do, I'd like to begin with prayer. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we ask that on a day such as this, with all the unique circumstances, that the risen Christ would be fixed in our minds, that we would understand who He is, what He does, how He works, and what He wants from us. That we wouldn't just commemorate His resurrection in isolation, but would look to You as You have told us what You want us to do through Your Son, Jesus Christ, even as He shepherds, purifies, and leads His church. Help us see Him today clearly in Your Word. I pray this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to the Revelation to John, chapter 1. The Revelation to John, chapter 1. This might seem an odd passage to preach from on Resurrection Sunday or Easter, as it is called. But I hope as we go through it, it will make all the sense in the world. So just a few points of clarification before we really get going. Um, In deciding to preach from the Revelation to John, I am not indicating that I believe that this is the beginning of the end times. Generally, I don't like to change my plan in preaching. Uh, I fully intended to preach from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. Um, The title was going to be something like The Resurrected Christ and the New Covenant because chapter 8 begins to deal with the need for the New Covenant and references the passage from Jeremiah 31. And Lord willing, that's where we'll be next Lord's Day. But in one sense, there's, there's no biblical reason why we should set apart this Sunday to celebrate the Resurrection. Um, In a sense, it's no more important than any other Sunday. The reason we call Sunday the Lord's Day, and you hear me say that over and over and over, is because John, even in this passage, calls the first day of the week the Lord's Day. And so in a sense, every Sunday is meant to be a reenactment or a celebration of the resurrection, might we come with the same amount of intensity and joy and expectation every Sunday as we do on Easter? Because He is risen indeed. But for centuries, Christians everywhere have chosen this Sunday to especially celebrate the resurrection. However, this will be, the world over, probably the most unusual Resurrection Sunday in a very long time. Maybe the most unusual until the Great Tribulation comes. So we could try to do everything as much as we can to make it feel like it's not a big deal, that we're not meeting together, that we're having to use the internet and live streaming to make this work. Um, we could try. I don't think we should. 
I think to a degree we should embrace the differentness, the oddity of it all, and understand what the Lord is doing by allowing and bringing this trial into our lives together. So this is my premise, my point in going this route for Resurrection Sunday. Everything is different today. And God is sovereign. So we cannot pretend like the Lord isn't involved in this. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, masking, if you would understand the oddity and the fact that we're not able to meet together on a day where even I myself, for our church specifically, this was going to be a big day. We were going to have, Lord willing, obviously we're not, we were going to have many people joining the church. We were going to do the Lord's Supper. It was going to be a big deal. There was going to be a lot of music. We were going to have lunch, maybe even breakfast together. It was going to be a big deal. And essentially, God says no. So I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, don't be overly discouraged, but do see this as the Lord's discipline. I'm asking if you would follow me in that, if you would consider it that way. Judgment begins with the household of God. And there is no global entity more affected than the church through this pandemic. Meeting together for a church is one of the most essential things for what it means to be a church. The word church from the Greek literally means to assemble, the assembly. And we're not able to. My big premise is that we should examine ourselves and return to the Lord. In this passage, Revelation 1 through 3, will help us do just that. So if you want to give kind of a resurrection theme to this message as we go through the Revelation to John chapters 1 through 3, what I would give you is this. The resurrected Christ and His church. The resurrected Christ and His church. Jesus is alive. And as we saw last week, he's ministering as high priest. So how does he do this? What is he doing? What is this resurrected Christ we say we believe came back from the dead and is alive today? We believe in him, but what is he doing? Where is he? What has he said? We can make the resurrection and Easter a cute, cool story, just isolated in your mind about some victory over death in the grave, and that you'll one day have victory over death too. And that's true, but there are 10,000 other things that the resurrection of Christ means for us. And the main thing He does is sanctify, purify, and make ready His church. That's what He's doing. That is His business today. The resurrected Christ purifies, sanctifies, and makes ready His church, His bride. 
So I want you to see Him. I want you to see His glory today. See the resurrected Christ. And not just as He triumphed over the grave, but in His life that He lives right now as He shepherds you, as He ministers to you and to the whole church and even to individual churches as your great risen High Priest. So, have your Bibles out either in your lap or on your device. I'll be preaching from the English Standard Version or ESV. And I want us to just look at the text. There's no handout for this sermon today, and that's intentional. I want us all to just gaze at the text and walk through it together. So the Revelation to John, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Many people view this book as something to fear or to avoid or be overly intrigued by. Those are all pitfalls. Jesus says, here are the things that soon must take place. And there is an unhealthy interest in the future that can occur in your heart in regards to this book. What we will see is that this book should not and will not yield any benefit to you if you do not enter by the entry point, which is Christ exhorting and shepherding His church to repentance. If you won't obey Christ in the first place, you're not going to receive any benefit from the other chapters. And he says, God gave him this revelation, gave this revelation to Christ to show his servants. So it's all of us. It's all of Christ's servants that this belongs to. And it says the things that soon must take place. So it was true 2000 years ago when John originally wrote this. And it's true today. Jesus says at the close of uh, the revelation to John, behold, I'm coming soon. God's timeline is different than ours. He is coming soon. And even if He waits 10,000 years, because we are in the last time, it is soon. And His church must be ready. He made known, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. So you'll see in this book this theme of mediators. So this revelation is from God to Jesus through an angel to John to the angels of the churches and then to the church. Why? Why this way? Why humans and angels and not just directly from Jesus to you? That's part of the point of this book to help us understand that we're a part of a kingdom. We're a part of a church. It's not just in in the kingdom sense of it, Uh, Just you and Jesus. There is an individual aspect of your faith, and we'll see that in these verses. But Christ's kingdom is multifaceted and multilayered, and we're all a part of it together. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, there will be mediation, there will be officers, there will be pastors, apostles, etc. And he says... This word witness, who bore witness. You're going to see this occur over and over. This is the same word for our word martyr. Uh, just know that uh, your translation might say martyr at a different place, but it's, it's this idea of witnessing, bearing witness to Christ. 
Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So I want us to appropriate for ourselves this blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And the time is near. And the point, the reason we get these seven letters right out the gate is that Christ is working to purify His church so that she will be ready for trial, for difficulty, for tribulation. And those churches, these seven churches that the letters are written to, they never saw the full fulfillment of all that was promised. And maybe we never will either. But we will face trial. And we are facing trial right now. And we must heed Christ's warnings and His encouragements and His promises. Or, the implication is, we won't be ready for the trial when it comes. And it will have no benefit for us. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia So these letters are written to particular churches, and this is part of the theme of this letter, uh, at least these first three chapters. There are individual aspects of Christianity, but God creates a people, a bride, a body, a new nation under Christ. And the visible presence of this new nation, this body, this bride is the visible church. So there are two gateways, if you will, to understand all of the blessing that's given in this book. One is the purity and holiness of the church. And second, even prior to that, to enter into all these blessings, you first must have care and love for the gathered people of God. That you would even identify yourself with the local church and care for its well-being. Christ cares for his church and understand this you might where you are sitting be willfully separating yourself from the most intense place where God's love is poured out through Christ Jesus Christ cares for his church and not just in a general individualistic way for specific churches these letters are formatted specifically for the needs of of each of these churches. And so you receive His love by identifying yourself with a local church. Grace to you and peace from Him who was and who is and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Notice the Trinitarian unity. There's grace from all three persons of the Trinity. And I'll just explain quickly this idea of seven here. This is not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. Seven in apocalyptic literature, which is what the revelation to John is, means purity, holiness, fullness. So saying the seven spirits is essentially saying the divine Holy Spirit or the most Holy Spirit, the most spiritual spirit. And you'll see that uh, more 
as we go through these. But my plea to you is to not get distracted by finer points. You'll read phrases as we go through these three chapters that aren't going to make sense to you. And that's okay. But don't get distracted by the finer points. These first three chapters are in a very large way meant to be received by every church so that we might understand how Christ is shepherding His church. How our risen Savior is working and ministering right now on your behalf. And if you get distracted by the finer points and the things you don't understand, you're like that teenage son or daughter who wants to argue about definitions while the real issue is disrespect. That ring any bells sitting at home? We'll argue about finer points and, well, this is what happened first and this is what happened next and here's the word you used and I think it's this. No, the whole issue is you're disobedient. You haven't cleaned your room. And so for us, if we look at the revelation to John and we're getting fascinated or distracted by all these little questions that we could bring up and we're not heeding the warnings and the promises and the encouragements to the church, we're just like that teenage boy or girl. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Okay. So, what is the main point here? And that's what we'll see. We're not going to get distracted by little things. So he says, this is at the, in the middle of verse 5, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he says, from, grace is from Christ and to Him or glory to Him. The glory of Christ is the goal. The Trinitarian God is revealed in Christ. And this is one of the themes you find in the New Testament. One of the nuances of redemption is that we are liberated or freed from our sins. And He makes us together a kingdom and priests. Here you find that priesthood language that we've been talking about for so long in the book of Hebrews. Peter mentions it. John mentions it here. Paul mentions it. It's a, it's a broad theme. So we, we are, in a sense, under our great high priest being drawn together so that we might minister as well with Christ as our high priest. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Often the revelation to John will overturn our expectations. We might have not put the word wail there. We might say rejoice, uh, marvel, glory, something like that. Understand that this is our risen Christ. And when He returns, it will not go so well for many, many, many people. The nations will wail on account of Him. In the same way that Good Friday is meaningless without Resurrection Day, so Resurrection Day is meaningless without the return. We say we love Him. We say that we are excited and happy that He has triumphed over death and the grave and Satan. 
But what does it mean that he's alive? What is he doing? What does he want from us? And he does want much. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. He who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is Lord God. This is the point of Christianity. Believing in God gets you nowhere than just a worse place on Judgment Day. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This one we are celebrating as the risen one. He is God. Not just this vague general sense that there's a creator somewhere. Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus isn't just some spiritual life coach who offers to make your life better if you'll just follow his rules. Or who promises to make you feel better when things are tough. He's the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So note in your mind that this is John, okay? And that may be very obvious, but this is going to be important as we look at the revelation of Christ here in a bit. This is John the Apostle. If you were to pick one phrase out of the Gospels to describe John, it would be the one whom Jesus loved. Because it is very evident, he's, he's probably the youngest of the disciples, and he has a very close relationship with Jesus. Maybe even sees Jesus as a, very much an older brother figure, maybe even in a sense kind of a fatherly figure to him. It's very intimate. And even at the Last Supper, John is leaning against Jesus in, in a, a kind of comforting way as they're taking the Passover meal. So there's a closeness and an intimacy there. Just, just have that in your mind. Lock that away. We'll, we'll pick it up in a bit. And he says, partner in the tribulation. And this is not talking about the great tribulation. This is talking about now. Paul says in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And I'm not making the connections every time some connection to our current situation comes up, but I hope you at home are making these connections. That this church age is defined here, at least by John, as the tribulation. And through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now is no different from that perspective. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's that idea of the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So Jesus Christ, before he gets into any specifics with John, before he gets into any specifics regarding the great tribulation and how the age is going to close and definitions and perspective on the new Jerusalem, he tells John, I want you to address the church. 
want you to talk to them on my behalf. I want you to exhort and encourage and rebuke them on my behalf. Because this is what Jesus cares about right now. Jesus isn't just sitting in heaven or, or you know, we, we can envision him up there creating rooms for us. I go to prepare a place for you. So we think like, oh, for these 2,000 years, he's been up there like the, the handyman of heaven going around and making our rooms really nice so he can bring us into these really awesome mansions. No, right now he is purifying, sanctifying, and through his servants ministering to his church and his individual churches. This is what he desires. We say we're excited that he's alive, but don't lock him away. Don't just leave him in that beautiful point of him walking out of the tomb. He's active. And he is eager for our holiness. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with golden, a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining at full strength. This is your resurrected Christ. Not some weak human in the sense of just, just barely overcame death and now, yay, he overcame it and he's walking around among us. This is your resurrected Christ. This is His glory. There's too much to comment on here. This is filled with imagery. Very little of apocalyptic literature is meant to be taken literally in, in, in the, our Western sense of the word. A lot of this imagery is borrowed from the Old Testament, but we don't have time to investigate all of that. But all of these will come up again. Each of the seven letters to the church references back to one of these descriptors of Christ. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. At the mere sight of this one, our resurrected Christ, John, the beloved apostle, the one who leaned on Christ at the Passover meal, falls as though dead. Understand that the incarnation of Christ, He was in a major way holding back His glory. It was veiled. And all of life, for you and me, brothers and sisters, is preparing us and strengthening our spirit so that we may see Christ, our resurrected Christ, and not fall as though dead like John did. And that's what holiness is about. That's what the purity of the church is about. That is what he wants us to be prepared to see. He even prays for this in the high priestly prayer in John 17. I pray that those who you have given me would be with me to see my glory that I had with you, that you gave me before the world began. But... He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. So comfort, the comfort that Jesus wants to give John, isn't by underscoring his humiliation anymore. It's by pointing to his glory, and that will be our comfort in the hereafter. Fear not, John, let me tell you more about how glorious I am. Let me tell you more about my victory, more about my shining forth of majesty. Think about it. And this is exactly what Paul says, that we, as we behold the glory of God in Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It's, it's in a sense like exercise, that you increase the difficulty so that you become stronger, so that you can encounter more difficulty, so that you become stronger. It has a compounding effect that you need to expose your heart more to the glory of our resurrected Christ, so that you will be ready one day to see it in its fullness. That's why you haven't been immediately taken to heaven upon believing in Him. The sense is, you're not ready. Paul says these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This pandemic, this trial, us not being able to celebrate the way we'd like to, all that Jesus does for us to discipline us and to purify us, it's to get us ready so that we can see Him. He's the living one. He died and he is alive forevermore. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then he tells John to do some things. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is important. So this vision of Christ, this glorified Christ, is that he, he is shining forth in all his glory and all this uh, symbolic language describing his glory and he's walking as it were among these seven lampstands and those seven lampstands Jesus says here represent the seven churches there he is walking looking perceiving his churches and in his right hand he holds the seven angels the author of Hebrews says that God makes his angels ministers to serve on behalf of the saints and so in a sense, there are angels who are ministering and, and governing and a part of Christ's government to exhort and purify the church. This is the risen Christ. He sees. He knows. He commends. He exhorts. He rebukes. He calls. He encourages. And He threatens. And finally, he makes promises. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So each town, it begins this way, with an address. 
Um, there is much to be learned from a historical or archaeological study of the different towns, and I can send you some free resources that would be very helpful there, but th we're not going to do that today. Uh, just know that the culture and history of each town matches up a lot with everything that's either right or wrong with the churches. So as a blanket caution for you and me, know that the culture you're a part of, even the town that you're in, has a way of having undue influence on the church, for better or worse. And the church in the United States is long overdue for a reality check, I would say. Knowing that our culture influences, influences us more than we would like, we need to be humble. Because the things that we think are pleasing to the Lord and are important to us aren't necessarily things we find in Scripture. They're things that our culture has given us. Attitudes, dispositions, behaviors, beliefs, all of it is polluted by our culture. The words of him, this is verse one, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So every mini letter begins this way. It goes back to the vision of Christ in chapter one, and it picks one of the descriptors of Christ and applies it to this church. So it's essentially underscoring an important part of Christ's glory before we get into any encouragement or rebuke. Or promises. And that is the pattern for us. Before we can make any positive change, before we can receive encouragement from Christ, before we can hear His voice clearly calling us to repentance, we must see Him. We must behold Him. We must set our minds on the resurrected Christ. Not what you might want out of your church. Not my, what you might want out of your marriage. Not my, what you might want out of your kids. Or your life. Christ. This is the pattern of these letters. Look at Christ. Behold Him. Consider this aspect of His glory. And then the path of repentance and encouragement and perseverance opens up clearly to you. And he begins with encouragement to Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake, my namesake, and you have not grown weary. In each of these letters, Jesus begins with a statement like this, I know. He sees and knows can't pull the wool over his eyes and we cannot think that because he is in heaven or he is so glorious that he is not aware more aware than we are of every little detail regarding our church our lives everything he knows so if you look at these verses it's it's a lot to be excited about good works they have fortitude, they have good theology, they have discernment, they're organized, they're strong, they're focused on the namesake of Christ. What more could you want in a church? 
There's so much we could emulate, but it's kind of like Camelot. It'll look nice on the outside, but inside there is corruption. Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This may mean that they're doing all of this in verses 2 and 3 out of a sense of obligation or a grin and bear it type of perspective. They're just stoics trying to do what is right, but no love for God. It also may mean at the same time that they're not loving one another. And that undermines their claim to love God. We've seen that in our sermons on unity, that the love of one another is the first visible manifestation of love of God and the change of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So outwardly, everything looks so good. Not just barely good. Not just kind of, ah, oh, they're getting along. This is a solid church on the outside. But under the surface, everything is distorted. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So remember, fill your mind with, recall to mind the memories of the love you once had for one another and for the Lord Christ. Repent. We don't like this word. There are whole schools of thought out there regarding church and preaching that say we shouldn't talk about repentance or sin. But this is what our Lord Christ, our risen Savior, says to His church. Repent. Repentance isn't just something you do to enter the kingdom. It is the kingdom. No matter who you are, repent. And or, as we'll see in the coming letters, persevere. And he says, return to the works that you did at first. So love is not just a feeling here. Jesus isn't just looking at them and saying, you don't have the right emotions. He says, do the works you did or the flavor of works that you did at first. Probably means something like the motive or the end goal out of love for Christ to gain Christ, as it were, as Paul says, that, that he's his whole motive and everything he does, he's left everything he's left behind and he's begun doing everything he started to do so that he might gain Christ. And just as your pastor and as your friend, I'm giving you full, just blanket approval. If you are doing something, anything, where you can't honestly say, the reason I'm doing this is to gain Christ, you either need to stop or have a full reallocation of your thought and resources so that you can say, the reason I'm doing X, Y, and Z is so I might gain Christ. That may mean moving across the country. That may mean changing jobs. That may mean going to a different church. That may mean anything. Ending a relationship even. Getting rid of a ton of things that you might consider an essential part of your identity. Thoughts, feelings, postures, habits. If you can't say, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I keep doing this is to gain Christ, be done with it. Forever. It's not worth it. If not, this is the end of verse 5, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's no way around this. This is a threat. Or at least a very harsh warning. 
And I would say we should quickly modify that by saying to even call it such a thing, to call it harsh, is reorganization of what love is. Because Christ is the most loving being in the universe, and he never does anything that's not motivated out of love for his church. This is loving. For him to say to his church, unless you repent, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand. Which means, if you go back to chapter 1, you're going to stop being a church. I'll make you cease to exist as a church if you don't repent. And that's love. That is our risen Christ. This is what he's doing right now. This is what he was raised from death to do in the world on behalf of his father, creating for himself a people. Do you think of Jesus this way? The greatest threat against churches is not the government or a pandemic. It is unrepentance and Christ Himself. Consider Israel in the Old Testament. How many times they were brought to the brink. And it wasn't because Babylon was strong or Assyria was strong or the nations surrounding them were strong. It's because God was disciplining them for sin. And when they cried out, when they repented, when they turned from their idolatry, God gave them deliverance. Jesus, and here's the point, Jesus goes to extreme measures to purify, to sanctify, and to make ready His bride. This is what your risen Christ is doing. And He gives a second encouragement. He doesn't leave us just at rebuke. Yet this you do have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's underscoring the fact that you, you actually do care about theology and right teaching. It might also help us understand the problem. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans, but their love has grown cold. Jesus hates things, and we must hate what He hates, but at the same time, we must love what Christ loves. Many of us get into a habit of just hating the things that Jesus hates, and we just become crusty and not motivated out of love anymore. Jesus' hatred of things is actually rooted in His love of things. He loves the church, He loves His Father, and so He hates this false teaching. Whatever it was, we don't really know what it was. It doesn't really matter for our purposes today. But the point is, you can't just be motivated out of hatred of bad things. Even though God hates them more than you hate them. But He hates them because He loves His righteousness. He loves His glory and He loves His people. Is that our motive? Is that that why we hate things? Or do we just hate And then he gives a universal call to hear. This is what I'm calling this. Each of the letters gives us this. And this is one of my favorite passages in these chapters. And I try to say it in almost every sermon I preach. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is universal in the sense that he's not just talking about the seven churches or the individual churches that he's writing to or all Christians at the time. He's talking about Everyone, anyone who has an ear, 
If you've got an ear, if you have the ability to hear and understand what is saying, then hear and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so this is for us. And that's something I want you to underscore in your mind and to think about. This is for us. Today. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Conquering here in these letters likely means, most likely means, repentance and coming back. Conquering in the sense that you you have turned from your ways. You, You have corrected what I told you needs correcting. You have overcome. You have conquered. And so in this sense, to the one who conquers, we could interpose, the one who loves again and restores the love that they have, I will grant what? To eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Conquering here is, if you conquer, if you succeed here, you're granted something that accords with what the issue was. This, This happens in all the letters. So is he going to give us a bigger church? More success? Wealth? Peace? Healing even? No. If we persevere, if we repent, he will grant us to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The best promises of Christianity are in the next life. And if you're trying to live life in a way where your hope is here, I I just feel sorry for you. I truly do. All of our best hopes, all of the treasured possessions that we want are in the next life. If we only have hope here, We're to be pitied more than anyone. So obey the risen Christ. Repent of lovelessness and hardness of heart. Receive the promise of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, this is one of the only two churches in these seven that that he has nothing negative to say about. Both of the churches that he has nothing negative to say about are small and are enduring a lot of persecution. And that's not to say if you're small and you have a lot of trials and difficult things going on that uh, you don't have anything wrong with you in the eyes of Christ. We're going to see one that is suffering and has a lot of problems. But there is a dynamic of role reversal that, that those things that are despised in the world, God has chosen to shame the strong. So the small, persecuted, weak church on the outside is the one that's actually doing really well. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, the vision of the resurrected Christ transforms and holds up His church in trial and tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So in this sense, Jesus saying that he knows is is 
kind of like a like I understand. I've I've been there. I'm there with you. He is he is empathizing with him. Synagogue of Satan here is echoes back to John eight forty eight. You are of your father the devil, speaking to the Jewish leaders. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So they're essentially being persecuted by those who say, we are the true people of God. We are the real Israel. You are not. You believe this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. So we're going to make things difficult for you. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So, the encouragement is not that I'm going to make it easy. The encouragement not, is not that I'm going to take it away. The encouragement is not that you'll be all fine on the other end of it. The encouragement is do not fear. Don't have anxiety. Trust in God's purposes, even when Satan himself is identified as the one bringing the trial. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. At least some will die as a result of this persecution. And the hope here is that we will have the imperishable crown of the victor in Christ. Again, in the next life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for us today as well. As we persevere through trial, as we regardless of how it turns out, even if some of us have to endure to death, do not fear. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. This echoes to Matthew ten twenty eight, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear whom who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So look to the risen Christ. Do not fear man or tribulation. Fear God alone and receive the promise of life eternal. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the one that comes out of his mouth back in the vision in chapter 1. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful servant or martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this idea of Satan's throne or where he dwells, don't get distracted. That's another thing that we could just have fascination with. This is apocalyptic literature. And it probably means emperor worship or pagan worship. There was one in Pergamum in particular who had the image of a serpent as its uh, statue or idol. But the main thrust here is that this church has a lot going on. They're suffering. And even while they're suffering, they're holding fast to Christ's name. So, Jesus, will you now promise to come and deliver us by the sword that's coming out of your mouth that you've just mentioned? Come on, we're having a really rough go at it. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We would expect Christ to move immediately to encouragement or, or maybe not be so severe on a church that's having a lot going on and a lot of problems and they're even holding fast to His name. But He rebukes them. And it's pretty harsh. Kicking us while we're down, Jesus. Maybe this sermon might feel that way to you right now. Sure, we got issues, but we're holding fast to your name. Sure, this was wrong, and, and maybe I didn't do everything I could have or the best I could have, but, but I've done this, I've, I've done good over here, and look at all of these good things I've done. That sound like an argument with your spouse, maybe? Why are you nitpicking, Jesus? The core problem here is false teaching. We could spend a lot of time on the teaching of Balaam, and what that means here in the allusions to the Old Testament. But the, the main issue is doctrinal purity. People are introducing false teaching that leads to sin. And all false teaching eventually leads to sin. Doesn't matter where it comes from. Some of you don't take doctrinal purity or teaching or false teaching that seriously, and you should. It's that serious. He says, therefore, repent. No qualifying, no invitation to talk about it, no timeline for gradual change. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, those who hold this teaching, with the sword of my mouth. So we would think, this is another expectation that's being turned on its head, that Jesus would come and fight for us with the sword that's coming out of our mouth. No, He comes and wars against those within His own church who hold to false teaching. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for us. This is your risen Christ exhorting you to turn away from false teaching. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This echoes back to John 6, where Jesus is the true manna from heaven. The white stone, it, it carries the idea of innocence, or that you're being pronounced innocent. And a new name, your identity being hidden in Christ. So look to the risen Christ. Repent of all false teaching. Repent of all beliefs that are contrary to the Word of God. Or the ones you just can't find in there. Repent of all false worship. And receive the promise of His nearness and fellowship and communion with God in Christ. That you would be accepted, innocent, pure in His presence and have a remade identity in Him. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Just to underscore again, we can't merely think of Christ in terms of His humiliation. This is who He is. 
His glory is such that it strikes even the holy man John down like a dead man. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. This seems like a really good church. If you could say this of your church or another church, it would sound a little silly to have anything wrong to say about it. You have love and faith and service and patient endurance through trial and that the works you're doing now are are, are better than the ones you did at first. You're getting better and better. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This could be an actual teacher, or it could just mean a teaching in general. What is she teaching? There's another reference uh, to 1 Kings in the Old Testament. It could be literal adultery, and we see in 1 Corinthians 5 that sexual immorality defiles the church. But it's likely that this adultery is connected to this teaching because of what Jezebel did, and we won't get into that, but it was essentially a syncretism. Spiritual unfaithfulness to God by worshiping other gods. Or worshiping God in an unworthy way. As Tozer says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It sounds severe, and honestly, it's kind of grating. Or is it? The problem is that we don't view the problem rightly. We don't see how big of a deal this really is. In the grand scheme of things, we don't esteem our sin as big as a, as a deal as it really is in the universal sense. I'm just a little person. What does my sin have to do with the glory of God? What am I really doing on a cosmic scale if I sin or believe things that are false or that God doesn't say about Himself? The end goal here is that the churches will know. It's tolerating Unbiblical teaching, such a big deal? Yes. Because it leads to sin. And it leads to an appropriately severe Christ Jesus. Jesus is no pushover. And He's more loving than we are. So when we read something like this, we can't say that this doesn't apply or this isn't the loving Jesus. This is all love. And this is how He loves His church. Unless you repent. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, see, it's teaching related, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast, 
to what you have until I come. So Jesus is making the distinction. There are those in the church who hold to this teaching and those who don't. And just like Jeremiah, who was a righteous person and had to be taken away into captivity, so many of God's churches will be a mixture of those who hold to false teaching and those who don't. And we will all encounter discipline because of us tolerating or allowing that to continue. And so Jesus says to those who are maybe discouraged and downcast because there are those in the church that hold to this false teaching, they feel powerless to correct it. He just says, hold fast. Hold fast through this discipline, perhaps. And the one who conquers, verse 26, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Even in the midst of severe warning and rebuke, these are probably the most encouraging and breathtaking promises in these three chapters. And this is how Jesus operates. He gives a severe warning and rebuke. And then he says, if you repent, if you conquer, here's what waits for you. It almost feels wrong for Jesus to promise these things, doesn't it? I mean, it would. how is it appropriate that I would have authority over the nations and to rule them with a rod of iron. It's a reference to Psalm 2 and the Son of Man passages in Daniel. These are prophecies explicitly about the Son of God. And Jesus says, I'll give them to you. Oh, Christian, do you see how eager and generous He is to bless you. So being united with Christ for Him to rule this way is in a sense for us to rule and reign this way as well. And this is folly. This is part of the silliness of what we preach. We're not just going to have a place in a congregation worshiping Jesus forever. You're going to get to rule the nations with Christ. That's stunning. And it boggles the mind. And being the morning star is an idea that even now you're going to be kind of a a preview or a foreteller of this coming kingdom, even as the morning star pronounces the coming of the new day. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for you. This is for me. Look to the risen Christ. Repent of unworthy thoughts of God and idolatry and receive the promise of being crowned and given dominion and be and being a proclaimer of his coming kingdom and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars all life and power are his that's the idea here he is the one who gives the spirit without measure there is no life outside of Christ i know your works You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus doesn't even start with encouragement this time. 
And often we insist that God operates this way. Or we insist that others who are trying to encourage us operate a certain way. And we will reject God's work in our life if it doesn't make us feel the right way. And Jesus starts right off the bat. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. A dead church? Wake up! Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If there was one phrase that I could pick out of all of this and give to the church in the United States, it's this, wake up! And our attention span is so short that maybe just those two words will get through our heads. Wake up! Strengthen what remains. Cut out what's rotten and dead. Stop focusing on all that. It's already gone. Strengthen what remains and is still is alive, but it's about to die. Strengthen that. How are we going to do this? By remembering what we've received and heard. Keeping the gospel. To repent. There's no avoiding it. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I will come against you, Christ says. If you don't wake up, it's not going to be that I'm just going to look the other way and be sad and your church is going to essentially dwindle and die. I will come against you. Again, the greatest threat against an unrepentant church or an unheeding church or a sleeping church is Christ Himself. Yet, (laughs) yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. There is a remnant even within these churches that are asleep, and specifically this church that is sleeping. And there's no indication that they're just going to be fine through this trial or through this season of Christ coming against them. They might have to suffer as well, but they're worthy to walk with Christ in white. And that suffering will even make their enjoyment of Christ much more fulfilling. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." So this isn't just for those who haven't already stained their garments. It's also for those who repent and conquer, who turn from this lethargy, this being asleep. The ones who wake up and conquer, this promises for them as well. And instead, the, the picture here isn't Jesus um, being there and God uh, on the th- the. Uh, the judge's seat and us confessing Christ's name so that God will accept us into heaven, it's that in that moment, Jesus is going to confess our name before the Father. Imagine that. The roles are in a way reversed. So look to the risen Christ. Repent. Wake up. And receive the promise to walk with Him in the splendor of holiness to always be secure. And to have your name confessed by Christ Himself to the Father. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, this is another small suffering, uh, maybe not even on the radar of some people kind of church. 
yet no rebuke, just a call to persevere. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So here's the encouragement to a suffering church. Look to Christ and the authority given to Him. Is your boast in Christ the Lord? I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. and They will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try, to try those who dwell on the earth. And I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown. Jesus has opened the door to paradise and to the blessing of the Father and no one is able to shut that to you. Even though you're suffering and there's no apparent strength, that is all worth it if it means we get to hold fast to Christ. Any amount of real weakness and suffering is worth it if it helps you hold fast to Christ. And no amount of strength, no amount of praise, no amount of better circumstances are worth it if they reduce your hold on Christ. So persevere. And why? Why does He call them to persevere? There's vindication. This is another kind of promise that it's almost odd for Jesus to promise this, and it makes us blush. Those who have said that you are not the people of God while claiming to be the people of God, they will bow down to you as I vindicate you in their sight as being the true people of God. But hold fast. Don't fall away. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This echoes Peter, 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Always. That is your hope and destiny, Christian. To be, as it were, a spiritual dwelling place together with your brothers and sisters for our holy God forever. And we're going to have names inscribed on us. If you're building a new building, you put the the plaque of the names that the building is dedicated to in a prominent place. And so this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to have a prominent place in the household of my God, and I will write the name of God Himself, the name of the new Jerusalem, and my new name on you. A trophy of God's grace, as it were. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look to the risen Christ, hold fast to His name, and receive the promise 
of being his very own dwelling place and exalted as the main proof and glory of God's grace. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness or martyr, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning in the sense that it is all for Christ. He is eternal, and the point here is that Christ is the reason and the beginning of creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your own nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Most of us are probably familiar with this passage, the whole hot water, cold water idea here with Laodicea. But there's a lot of bad teaching out there about what this means. This does not mean either be a total, uh, either be totally against me or totally for me. That's not what this means. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. God is calling all of us to repent. So Jesus isn't here saying to the last church, I wish some of you would just decide never to repent. That's not what he's saying. The idea here is usefulness. Lukewarm water can't be used for either healing like the hot springs or isn't refreshing drinking water like the cold springs. Lukewarm water is useless. Your water or the totality of your religion is worthless and useless. So Jesus says, come to me, take what you need from me. The problem here is likely that they're doing everything on their own strength. Laodicea was a very wealthy town. This is a big church. And we can be so proud of what we can do. We can organize ourselves and raise funds and we can call that the work of God. And Jesus says, buy from me. Do we spend as much time in prayer and pleading for God's work and intervention and power and reproof and refinement as we do scurrying around trying to make things work on our own? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. It's appropriate that we would end with this letter. Those whom I love, I rebuke and reprove and discipline. You want to be loved by this risen Christ that we're celebrating today? Receive his reproof and discipline. Do you delight in God's love for you in Christ? And this is part of the deal. Because heaven is that big a deal. You've got to be ready. It's been asked, if the Holy Spirit departed, what would change about our gatherings? 
the church in Laodicea, Jesus is pictured as being outside the city gates. This is not like an individual door. This is the door to the city, the door to the church maybe. If Jesus is outside and we're all inside doing what we can our own strength and with our own resources, if Jesus all of a sudden left or the Spirit departed, would anything really change for us? If Jesus was not obviously presented as the main and most important person, or if the Word is not the obvious main feature, or if the majority of what we do is in the power of the flesh, if prayer is not an obvious priority in our gatherings, if feeling certain emotions during a service is more important to us than love and humility, or if those of us who are dealing with problems are the only ones we see prioritizing prayer, and feel a desperate need for God, or if there is no exhorting one another, or if we only talk to and love those who are like us anyway, or if there's no confession of sin, or if there's no real change as a result of the preaching of God's Word, then our religion is worthless and Jesus is going to spit it out of His mouth. It's revolting to Him. It's yuck. And here's the amazing thing. To hear such warnings is love. Not every church who has these problems hears clearly Christ warn them in this way. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This boggles the mind. And we can blush, I blush, to even think about what this means. It's not that it's unclear, I just can't imagine that it would be so. To sit on the throne, not just a throne, the throne, the center of all power in the universe, and the center of all power of anything that will ever be or ever has been. To the one who conquers, you'll get to sit there. And not just like having a turn a few minutes for a photo op. Like you're going to get to sit there and rule with Christ from the seat of power. So look to the risen Christ. Repent of worthless, flesh-enabled religion. Be zealous for holiness and receive the promise of ruling and reigning with the Lord over all things forever. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray that as we have gone long, I pray that the blessing is that much more received. And that our risen Christ isn't just someone we celebrate one day out of the year or think about maybe in some way as being alive, but as the number one person who cares for and acts and works on behalf of His church, His bride, purifying her, sanctifying her, and making her ready. Oh Lord, may we not stop our ears at what's going on. That's so we would not regard lightly your discipline. In Jesus' name, amen.